Hey everyone, welcome back to the M&M Hockey Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Alex Metzger, along with me is my co-host, Chase McCallum. Uh, and today we are going to be looking at some news and stuff that has happened as the first week of the season is getting underway. Uh, it's Wednesday night when we're recording this. The Leafs and Habs are scheduled to drop the puck any minute, any minute now, but uh, I'd be willing to put a lot of money down. Puck drop doesn't actually happen for another 40 minutes or so because that is how the NHL seems to... Uh, work with these things always you'd hate to start on time yeah and you hate to like even the worst part is they know they're gonna have a 30 minute ceremony or whatever for every opening night like so you you hate to just like factor that in and be like hey by the way this game's gonna start at 7 30 no 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 you can't do that like you you gotta say seven and then get them all tuned in for the pregame and then seven and then 30 minutes of festivities just glorious isn't it I genuinely wonder if sometimes they know no one would watch the shit if they didn't uh, lie about it like that, but. You would think that's got to be at least some of it to get people to tune in. Yeah, I think it's definitely part of it, but like other sports don't do that. Like if baseball says their first pitch is at 7.07 p.m., that first pitch is directly at 7.07 p.m. That's true. And the NFL is weird because they'll be like, oh, pregame show starts at 10 a.m. And when the game's at one or whatever, and they just like advertise the heck out of the pregame show kind of thing. Yeah. And NFL's almost the opposite way where they go kickoffs at 105, but then they'll kick off anytime from like 102 to 106, basically. But it's yep. not like in a great, like there's no ceremonies that even like um, when they raise the flag and for like the Thursday night, first week game of the season, that happens before the game. You still know the game's starting at like 845. Yeah. You at least know when it is happening. But anyways, um, yes, it is Wednesday night as we're recording, so that is about the time frame. Hopefully nothing too serious breaks tonight, but um, um, the season officially got underway yesterday with the uh, Penguins a shocking upset over the Tampa Bay Lightning to start the year. That Penguins lineup was uh, uh, ugly, to put it lightly. Uh, Jeff Carter was centering the first line with, like, Brian Rust, and I don't even know who was on the left wing. I mean, I said, oh, here it is. Okay. It wasn't even it was, like Gensel either. No, Gensel is out. Crosby's out. Malkin's out. Uh, it was Danton Heinen, Jeff Carter, Brian Rust, Zucker, Rodriguez, Kapanen, McGinn, Bluger, Simo, O'Connor, Boyle, Lafferty, uh, Dumoulin, Latang, Pedersen, Marino, Friedman, Rudwell, and then Jari into Smith. And they won 6 2. Uh, just classic Pittsburgh. And it, it's good to know nothing's changed. Yep. The Pittsburgh Mark Donk and Buzz Flibbits. Uh, reign supreme. I, maybe uh, Sullivan actually gets his due as like a top, like a Jack Adams guy this year. I do think he goes under the radar uh, sometimes just because, yeah, of course he has Crosby and Malkin. So, of course the team's supposed to be somewhat good, but just like how good that team plays. And even like, I feel like people know how good the team plays when one or both of them go down. And yet, for some reason, it's a weird case of like Sullivan never really gets the credit for whatever reason. Yeah, even though everyone makes fun of the fact that they're good no matter who's missing at all times. Yeah, like most of the time when that happens, people would be like, oh, yeah, that must mean the coach is like really good. But I I do feel like that's not always not often the case with Sullivan. But um, another uh, great job last night, Chris Letang, two assists uh, to start the year. Big for my fantasy team. Not that anyone actually cares about that. Uh, and then the evening game happened as well. The Vegas Golden Knights and Seattle Kraken. Uh, the Seattle Kraken played their first ever game. 
went down three, nothing early, climbed back and lost uh, four, three, I think with a couple minutes left. Um, I, you, you mentioned you didn't watch any of the game. I watched a little bit. The jerseys look really, really good. And that is my best takeaway from the game. Yeah. I saw pictures of the jerseys. They did look very good. I am very excited to get one of those eventually when, uh, one of them come up. I already have a Vegas one. I got a Mark Stone one, of course. So um, maybe in three years when Brady Kachuk gets flipped to the Seattle Kraken because they don't want to pay his next contract, I will be getting that. But um, <laughs> we'll go with some news before we get into more storylines throughout the year here because there's been a couple really big signings um, before the year started. Uh, a couple unusual ones and a couple that you see, obviously not. there's not always star talent like this available every year, but definitely a couple that you see every year in the fact that um, – you know, some teams just want to get a contract over with with their star player and 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 lock them up a year early. And then that's kind of what the first one here is. Alexander Barkov signs an eight year deal for 10 million per. It doesn't kick in till next season. So he will he'll be 27 at that time. Um, he just turned 26 about a month ago. Uh, there's not a ton to talk about, in my opinion, in this other than maybe the fact that a lot of this is in signing bonus, which is not exactly common for the Florida Panthers. Yeah, that was kind of an interesting little note. I don't know if that's what they needed to do to get the deal done this early. I don't like you wouldn't think so. Like, I mean, I, I think that Barkov definitely took a little bit of a discount in that if he would go to open market, some team would absolutely be offering him the John Tavares contract, probably even a little bit more than that. Right. But yeah, I think so. Well, Tavares got more than the con- Tavares contract. He just took less. So yeah. So like, he, yeah, he definitely took a little bit of a discount, but I think that's more just he likes playing in Florida too. You can equate a little bit of that, I guess, to the state tax, but I, I don't really think so. And even someone made a good point. It's like, how much worse is Braden Point than Alexander Barkov? Because he took eight million just down the road last year. Yeah, true. Um, so, he's worse, but I don't know if he's that much worse. Exactly. And, but their, their bigger point was more just like the state tax can't have that, that much of a play. Um, you know, it's more just a Tampa thing than a floor, yeah. like a tax thing. But um, yeah, no, like I, I don't, I, this is a, like, he's a great player. He's an elite player, you know, like a top 10 center in the world, top, t- you know, 15 player in the world. Uh, and this locks him up from age 27 to 34 or whatever. So like any eight-year contract, the end of this deal has the risk of looking kind of ugly, but you just like there's no way you can't not do this contract. Oh, yeah. This is such an easy spot to be in as a GM because like like you said, there's downside risk signing anyone to an eight-year deal, but Barkov's universally considered great. And if this does blow up in their face, no one's gonna fault the GM for it. Like, this is just a win-win for the guy. Like, there's no way you can lose signing this deal. Obviously, it can hurt the team itself if he gets injury trouble or whatnot, but nobody's going to be like, wow, you're an idiot for having signed this deal. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's just – it's one of those that I think – like, I don't even think I really saw too many people online complaining about it. You'd even get the odd time some be like, he's not that good. I think everyone's just kind of accepted because, like, mainstream people were on that – uh, thing for two years where he was like Selkie candidate, best player in the world, or one of the best players in the world. And that wasn't really true statistically. And then last year he really bounced back to what that was. So if he is anything like he was last year, even if he's not quite that level, I think both sides of the, of the argument are really going to agree that he is just kind of this top 10 centerman who's worth $10 million. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah, it's so. maybe he's not the twelve million dollar guy or whatever he was last year, but he takes a, a slight step back. Still pretty easy to be a ten million dollar guy, and he plays probably the most important position when we're looking forward, at least in the sport. So I'm yeah, and about it. Yeah, and I should say, you know, like when I made the signing bonus comment, I just like Florida's not really known for that, but I will say it's not like they haven't been they haven't been cheap in the past couple of years, that's for sure. They went out and spent a ton of money on Bobrovsky, even on Quenville as a coach. You know, Quenville's not coaching for a uh, bare minimum salary or anything like that, so it, it shouldn't be absolutely shocking. But it is good to see like a a smaller market, quote unquote, being willing to spend like this is some heavy bonuses stuff. Like this is like. Toronto Maple Leafs-esque kind of stuff where it's 11 million, 11 million, 11 million in bonuses. Every year is a 1 million base salary, which is, I think, the minimum that they have to have for this contract. And then it goes 11, 11, 11, 10.6, 9, 7, 6.2, 6.2 in signing bonuses. So it's a pretty evenly split out contract. He gets a little more to start it and then closer to 7.2 mil per year at the end. But um, it, it's good to see. It's just something that, you know, We've talked about how signing bonuses can be an advantage for teams that um, definitely have a little more money at times. And this one uh, wasn't the case. Yeah, exactly. It's good to see kind of like a level playing field here. For sure. Um, Let's go to the next one. Uh, This one is also a big contract that I don't think me and you are going to like near as much. Uh, that would be Mika Zibanejad, another eight-year deal. This one's for $8.5 million per $68 million total. Uh, also doesn't kick in until next season. So he will be 30 when this kicks in. Um, or sorry, well, he'll be 29 and a half. He, he turns 29 in April, so it'll be his age 29 season, I guess, if you want to call it. Um, so it'll take him 29 to 36, I believe, if my math is right on that. Um well, what what's your opinions on this one? I feel like it's going to be similar here between you and I, but uh, what were your thoughts on this? This is a way more interesting contract than the Barkov one for sure. My initial thought is, is Mika Zibanejad a 20% true talent shooter, like slam dunk, you know, best shooter in the entire league? And if the answer is no, which of course it is, I really don't like this deal. Yeah, I mean... Even if he was, I don't think I'd like this deal just in terms of the term. Yeah, like, like I think given his play driving t- deficiencies, he has literally only been an eight and a half million dollar player once in his career. And it was the year in which he shot 19%. On a power play, too, that had one of the best players in the league on it in Artemi Panarin. Exactly. And he's like a career 11 or 12% guy. And it gets into this weird thing, too, with um, aggregation, then, too. Because if you look at his three-year aggregate numbers, he shot, you know, somewhere around his true talent. Uh, Then he got really, really lucky. And then he shot somewhere around his true talent. So if you end up looking at like his three-year totals, you can end up overrating them uh, pretty, pretty aggressively because like, obviously you can't take away that one great year, but also we know that's not who he is. So like it's, you can end up getting a far rosier picture of the player than you should that way. Yeah, you know that talent's capable in there once in a while, but it doesn't mean you should expect it just every year going forward. Like Exactly. It's not impossible, but he's just as likely to go shoot 8% as he is 19 again. Exactly. And yeah, like I I don't know. I'm I'm not surprised. Like this just 
kind of seems like a contract the New York Rangers were going to hand out. Um, I, like, I get it. They're kind of, yeah. Yeah. Like, the, they're kind of in a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation because they've made it clear they want to go for playoffs and their center depth isn't good to begin with. You can't, like, if, you're, if your goal is playoffs, you can't let him walk. But at the same time, like, $8.5 million is a lot of money. And I think I love it. From a personal perspective, I love it. I, I'm happy Zabanjad got his money. Like, he seems like a great guy. So on that thing, I, I'm very, very happy about it. But, like, this is just a, a ton of money, like, for a, a team perspective, you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, I – they almost had to do it, though, is the worst part. Like, given the position they put themselves in. The only way they wouldn't have been able to have to sign this contract is if they could have swung uh, to Buffalo that he should be part of an Eichel deal. Yeah, but why would Buffalo want that, of course? Yeah, I mean, maybe Buffalo would have looked as, oh, we can get a good center for a year, flip them at the deadline. But, like, still, like, it did just seem very unlikely, and the trade in general seemed very unlikely to start with. So, like, but, like, that's the only way you were getting – you were not signing Zibanejad to a contract because – like, again, like, I just, I hate to be that guy because it feels like every time we bring them up, I'm just so low on this team. But their center depth is him, Ryan Strom, Philip Cheadle, and Kevin Rooney are the only four listed as centermans on their uh, cap friendly right now. Yeah, that's tough. And, like, they know – like, this is weird, too, because – so they're they have eight million in cap space, which is you know good, but not crazy. They have a lot of really expensive guys locked in for long term right now. At which point, either Caco Lafreniere and Fox end up getting worse, and or I guess we can already say Fox is good, but either guys like Caco Lafreniere, Fox is guaranteed to make a buttload of money this year, and then Miller and Lundquist and those guys fizzle out, in which case you're not going to be good anyways. Or if those guys do get good, you're fucked when you have to pay them. Yeah, like, where's this money coming from? Because you got, like, Fox is due for an extension this year. This like is the last year of his ELC. He's going to make going, more than $8 million next year. He's going to be demanding... Done. Yeah, exactly. Like, what did McCarr make? Uh, he's going to be demanding basically that contract, maybe a little, little less, but I, I highly doubt it because he's going to go, Hey, McCarr doesn't have a Norris unless he wins one this year, of course, but he's going to go McCarr, McCarr doesn't have a Norris. I do. And you're buying so many UFA years of Fox and stuff like that. Like, yeah, Fox is 23 nor uh, McCarr was 21. I think when he signed it. So yep. like, yeah, like it's just like that. He's up this year. Yeah. Kako, I think is up this year as well, if I'm not mistaken. Now that I don't think that'll be, I think they probably bridge Kako. I mean, if they were smart, they could do an eight-year deal where they get some, like, eight-by-five something and hope that he breaks it out and into that because, I mean, let's face it, if he doesn't, your team's pretty screwed anyways. Yeah, unless Lafreniere becomes, like, Panarin. Yeah, but, like, I, I but I think they might, like, bridge Kako or something, so he won't be a huge ticket. But, like, again, like, if Lafreniere has a good step up this year and then a really good year next year, you're going to have to be paying him as well. So, like... Yeah, I just don't really – it kind of feels like when they rebuilt, they went, wow, look at all this cap space we had. We haven't had this kind of toy in a long, long time, and they've just been recklessly spending it without any 
any thought of what the next three years might look like. Yeah, exactly. Like they just, they randomly accelerated a rebuild and now they're kind of between two cores such that you have to sign the Zabanajad thing. But if Kako and Lafreniere and Fox and them are good enough to give you the potential at a cup window, like they've just slammed that second shot they have at it shut, probably. Assuming Zabanajad doesn't get better um, in his age, 30 seasons, which seems like a pretty safe bet to me. Yeah. And like, by the, so McCarr got uh, nine mil for 60 years, the nice six by nine contract. Um, so like, Adam Fox is going to be two years older than McCarr was when you're signing it. So I bet you he's asking for that exact same deal. Maybe, maybe it's eight by eight instead, 8.5 by eight or something like that. But like he's at minimum going to be an $8 million player. And I, I would like bet that it could very well be more. Yep. Oh yeah. Especially he puts up like 60 points this year. Yeah. And so like already if, there, there goes most of cap space. Like he could get the same AAV as McCarr if he just wants like a seven or eight year deal without even like blinking. He might even be able to get more like that. If, if he goes eight years, he'll absolutely be getting nine mil minimum. Yeah, yeah, he could be if he could reach like double digits. Yeah, even, yeah, yeah, for sure. Like, um, but yeah, and, and then like again, Kako's up this year, so like even after the and the problem is there's no money coming off the books. You have Gorgiev's two point four, which sure that's a little bit of money, but. Where are you finding a better backup than Gorgia for? Like, I guess you're just gonna go with someone for 900k and hope Shesterkin's good to take the net. So you're saving yeah. uh, 1.5 or so there, and then you have Strom's 4.5 coming off the books, which again you don't have a backup at 2C right now. And there's been reports that they might want to try and resign him, even if they don't, they'll unlock. Hey, there's your 4.5. You know, don't have a 2C, and you're still going to be almost crunched for cap because with the um, um, excuse me, the Zabanajad extension, like that's taking up an extra $3.3 million in space. So like you're, you're going to be pressed up against it because you just don't really have anyone coming off the books. Yeah. Yeah. That's tough. Like they need, they need their prospect pool to be better than people think it is. And if anything, it looks like their prospect pool has been wildly overrated at this point. Oh, incredibly. And like, it's getting to the point where they really, I don't think have a ton of guys that are just like dying to break through, especially because the Vitaly Kratsov isn't on the team anymore and is not uh, reporting to HL. So reports came out this week that he's going to be asking for a trade. So there's another one of those absolutely high end can't miss prospects that have missed now. Can't include them in an Eichel trade though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It would just be too much if you did that, but like, it's just the, this cap sheet is insane. Like, obviously, you're not complaining about having Panarin for 11.6. He's absolutely worth that right now and should be worth something close to that for a couple of years yet. But then you have Chris Kreider at 6.5 for six more years. You have Zabanajed who's starting 8.5 next year for eight more years. Barkley Goudreau's at 3.6 for six more seasons. Like, and that's just the ones up front. On the back end, you have Truba at eight for five more years. That's an overpay. You know, like Lingren's a fine contract. Like, even just like, why do you need to pay Patrick Nemeth 2.5 for three years? It's not like he's a bad player. It's just, no, like if you're going to be spending massive amounts of dollars on on other ways, like you just can't really be paying him that. No, like Lundquist better win a Norris on his ELC. Yes. 
or like literally be a number one defenseman on that ELC. Like they're yeah. just like, what a team. Yeah. They're such an enigma to me because people like they have maybe the biggest discrepancy I see online between their fan base. And I don't mean like the random chuds in the comments that just assume every team, everything their team does is doing well, but like a lot of intelligent people are like insanely high on this team. And I don't see it. Yeah. Like, and scouts love their prospects. I just don't get it. Like, yeah. Even just like people that I like absolutely respect. It's just like, what on earth? Yeah. Like this is the biggest discrepancy between like respectable people opinions of the team and like what i'm looking at on this cap sheet here yeah and you just seem to make it worse every time like this advantage ad contract i think is going to blow up in their face it's going to be matt duchene 2.0 right yep yeah and shooting talent uh ages pretty well so it'll be probably the most insidious kind of anchor deal because it's not going to look nearly as bad as as it is because he's still going to have goals on the power play yes and yeah like it's gonna be i think it's fine blake wheeler kind of thing right like where it's like oh no look at how many points this guy has he can't be bad it's like well he doesn't do anything at five on five for the value for you but yeah he'll have like a 45 percent goals for percentage at five on five and be like this guy's like a top 20 center in the league because he scored 30 goals for four straight years yeah and like the other thing i really don't understand about this is like when i see like just how this team's been built this is like what people wanted Toronto to do. Where like Toronto got flack for signing John Tavares to an eleven point five million dollar or eleven million dollar deal, and yeah. then they were like, "Well, that sets the market for the rest of their players." It's like, well, like people get so just like like just so horny for the Artemi Panarin signing, you know? Like, oh, look at the, they went out and got Truba and signed him and Panarin and got him. It's like. Well, they just threw a bunch of money on guys who are older. And, like, the Panarin one's fine. That, that, that's fine, whatever. But, like, even the Chris Cryer and Zabanajet ones, like, well, you just threw a ton of your cap space at the people that are older. So now you're going to have to nickel and dime your young players for every cent you have. Not to mention, you're already setting the bar for your young players when they come up. It's yeah, like, exactly. Like, the, the same people who openly criticize how the Leafs built their team between, A, paying Tavares, and then, B, paying their star players what they're worth. And, get, sure, again, like, we can go over as many times as we want. Yes, Marner got slightly overpaid. He's still worth his contract. It just should have been $2 million lower or whatever. But, like, the same people who criticize that are the ones that are saying, this is a great with This is how they should have built their team. It's like, so sign Tavares, which was the Panarin of that class, and then re-sign JVR and Tyler Bozak to massive deals? Or exactly. I guess, would be? like Because now New York's in such a position by never making the tough decision and walking away from a Kreider as a Banajad, someone like that. Now, like they're either going to be in cap hell or if they're not, it's because they're young guys. They've guys aren't good enough to deserve decent money. So it's like either you're in cap hell or because like the reason Marner got overpaid is because he played really, 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 really fucking well. Yeah. He was like almost a point per game player for like three years. Yeah, exactly. Whereas if it's like, oh, wow, we're not in cap hell. Look, you guys were wrong saying that these contracts would all blow up in our face. The only reason that's going to be true is if Kako and Lafreniere and guys like Lundquist generally bust. Yeah, at which, which point is, your team sucks anyway. Yeah. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I really don't understand. I mean, I'm sure people who listen to this podcast know how I feel about the Rangers, but it just, it constantly perplexes me. I really think they butchered, just butchered everything they've done. Like I said, because it's, it's with the Rangers, it's smart people. Like every now and then, like when you see a Sens fan being like, oh, they have a top three front office, just like whatever. Every fan, fan base has homers like that. It just looks dumber the worse your team is at the moment. But with the Rangers, it's so many smart people are like, this is amazing. Every time they do something. And God, I just, I can't see it. Yeah, me either. Um, this is a team that I will continue to fade until they show me otherwise. But um, the worst, I think they could be good this year in the Metro. But oh, yeah, the Metro is so just average that I think they're going, like, I wouldn't shock me at all if they make the playoffs. Yeah, exactly. They seem just primed to be going into next year as just aggressively overrated. Yeah, well, like they just in general remind me of like the Flyers from the past five years or whatever. It's like it's not like they're a bad team. Like they have clearly they have talent. Um, yeah, you know, you know? Couture are freaking amazing and have been for a long time. Yeah, and like they obviously Panarin's amazing. Even like Zabanajad now, we're like making fun of the contract, but he is a good player. Like, but it's just yep. they're not good enough to ever get over the hump, and they're not really bad enough to completely rebuild or anything like that. They're just kind of stuck with two cores in the middle of nowhere where they make the playoffs and get eliminated around one, one year, and then miss the playoffs by eight points the next fire their coach and repeat. Yeah. And then it's also the thing like, so the crap sauce situation, this is like, I don't know how many guys have came into this system and disappointed aggressively. So are they not nearly as good at drafting as we think they were, or are they just like horrific at developing players? And which one do you want to be true if you're a team? Yeah, that's the thing, right? Like, like I, I could absolutely see the the development thing being because you know we talked about how often Quinn just seemed to absolutely butcher that, and um, you know obviously I have a new coach now, but I, I think you could make the argument that um, uh, you know, um, with uh, Gerard, it's, it's Gallant that's behind the bench now for them, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like maybe he just didn't like what he was seeing and it's already too late for Kratzoff. So they're just giving a hard restart, which wouldn't be like that. Like that, that is not the end of the world, I don't think. No. And there's a chance that that uh, relationship has severed. New coach or not, he could just be done with the team. Exactly. So it's like maybe your hope is that, yeah, okay, they're not actually that bad at development anymore. They have a new coach and a new system in place. It was just the old one. Because, like, I, I think that's what you have to hope for, right? Because if you're actually just way overrated at drafting, like, I mean, drafting's random as it is. But generally speaking, if that's something you're bad at, it's not something you're just magically going to turn around overnight. No, exactly. It doesn't seem like you're just all of a sudden going to become great at it. But the same thing, I think, with that, too, is if they're bad at drafting, what's that say about everyone who absolutely loves their draft every year? So, like, and like maybe it is just they got unlucky a couple times, but I don't know. Like, it's happened so many times in a row to so many different players. Oh, yeah. Like, how many top 10, top 15 picks have they had that have just absolutely busted out? Yeah. Like, the one player that's overperformed expectations was Adam Fox, who they did not draft. Or develop at all. Like yeah. that was a big part of it. It was that he took three or four years in college or whatever and did his own development. Yeah, he came to them NHL ready and then stepped into the lineup. Yeah. So um, you know, I just realized how much money they have in buyouts as well. 
They have Lundqvist for 1.5. That ends at the end of this year. Shattenkirk for 1.4 for two more seasons. Girardi for 1.1 for two more seasons. D'Angelo for 300K this year and 800K next year. And Brad Richards for zero more dollars for five years. So aggressive. Just what a team, man. What a team. Um, before we get on to the next signing, I, I should mention uh, ESPN put out their um, uh, viewership from last night. Um, ratings are up 54% over the 2019 NHL season opening doubleheader uh, and up 19% over the 2020 season opening tripleheader. Um, for, I'm assuming those are those are both about NBC, obviously. But uh, so they up 54% from what NBC did two years ago and 19% from last year, which is uh, That's um, huge. Yeah, that's, that's really, really good, obviously. Pittsburgh and Tampa ranks as the most viewed opening night game on cable on record. Peaked over a million viewers in the States. Nice. Yeah, okay. so good, right. good, really good start to the ESPN stuff. Um, I, I didn't really, I don't know, I, again, I didn't get to watch a ton. I uh, I thought they're both the play-by-play slash uh, announcing crews were pretty solid. Uh, obviously, Ray Ferraro was on the one, so it's hard to go wrong with that. But I, I don't know, I apologize, I don't really know who did the, the late night game, but the you know a little bit that I was listening to that, I, I re- enjoyed it as well. So um, yeah, I, I think that uh, overall it's a good start and we'll see where it goes from there. But let's get on to another signing. Um, it's good that we had the, the Rangers to rant about because we were worried we weren't going to have enough to talk about today. Uh, but we're already 30 minutes in, so that's good. Never, Rangers never fail to be interesting, if nothing yeah. else. Yeah, no kidding. And here's another interesting one. Uh, I feel like you're a little lower on this contract than I am, but it is definitely there's a lot to unpack and talk about with this one. Uh, Nick Suzuki signs an eight-year deal with the Montreal Canadiens at 7.875 per. Uh, again, doesn't kick in until next year, so he will be 23 when it kicks in. Um, and it'll sign him till he's 30 years old, basically. Uh, so right through what you would, uh, most people would consider his peak, uh, and expires right when he, uh, could start declining. Uh, give me your thoughts on this, uh, contract, because, uh, I, I think there is a lot to unpack here. Yeah. This is another super interesting contract. I think there's a lot. I don't like it on the face of it i think it was an overpayment relative to anything realistic we've seen from him however we do always talk about how players should be paid for what they're going to do rather than what they have already done and i believe contracts like this are the logical extension of that reasoning at least yes so that's kind of where i think it's a fine enough bet where if you're going to take a bet on an eight-year contract, I would much rather see teams do it with this than someone who's 27, 28, 29, 30 years old. Um, yeah. That being said, I definitely do think there is more inherent, like people, I think it depends who you talk to about what my opinion on this contract might be, because like, I think the mainstream media chalk this as a slam dunk, can't lose deal for the Montreal Canadiens. And that is absolutely not true. Yeah, that is completely nuts. Because like, like everybody was saying, oh, he's good defensively. And then if he ever figures out offensively, we have a huge steal. Well, fun fact, what do you think the best predictor of good defensive results is? Offense. Yeah, it's how shitty you are or good you are in offense. As a safe bet, you're better off betting on guys who are good at offense 
to be shit at defense next year than you are to be betting on the guys who were shit at defense, if that makes sense. Like the, the inverse, like McDavid being bad at, uh, or the McDavid level guys are bad at defense generally because there's so much offensively. So like, I don't know. And then if he figures it out on offense, like, what does that mean? Like he has shown not nothing, but if he just randomly gets good at this and like he has draft priors, so it's, it's not impossible. And he was good in the playoffs, I guess, but he has shown nothing of that in the regular season. Jonathan drew underscored on his return to the Montreal Canadiens. Um, uh, Yeah. Like, I I don't know. Like I I wouldn't say he's shown nothing. His play driving is really what needs to improve. Um, Yeah. Because offensively, he does clearly have talent. He's put up 41 points in back-to-back years. That first year was 71 games, so it's like a 50-ish point pace just under. But last year was in 56 games. So in the regular season, it's not like his point totals are bad. He's just at five on five, he's definitely got to take that step forward, which is where the risk comes. You know, last year was at 60 point pace. And and that's the big thing is where everyone keeps going, well, if he's a 60, 65 point player who's elite defensively, that's great. It's like, Okay, but you can't just pencil the dude in to be elite defensively. He might be. Yeah. Like, like defense noisiest thing in the sport, and that's the only thing he has going for him thus far, minus some good power play results. Yeah, like the amount of times I've heard people like compare him to like what like they're like, well, obviously he's not quite Bergeron, but kind of like Bergeron's like, do you people not realize how damn good Bergeron is, slash especially was for like a decade? Yeah, exactly. That is an absolutely asinine comparison for this guy. I would say like a better comparison, and this is still the very high end of what he would hit, is like Ryan O'Reilly level, where it's like top 10, maybe a little underappreciated or whatever, has a couple yeah. years where he's like pushing into that top 10, can have a really, really good year whenever, but like generally speaking, is in like a, a 9 to 18 range or whatever. And even that, again, like I think is like a very high end projection of what would happen if everything went right. Yeah, exactly. Or like a Sean Couturier the year before he had that like point per game season kind of thing. That's like the absolute best case scenario. But that would require a huge uh, offensive uptick with no drop off in defensive results, which, like we said, is difficult to obtain. Most players with good defensive results comes at offensive results comes at a cost of defense. And like he hasn't been that good offensively yet. Yeah, not on a yeah play driving standpoint, but definitely not. And like yeah. I don't know, it's like really that, talent. yeah, exactly. Which is why, like, at the very least, I think this contract is going to. It's only so so bad it can be because you know it's better to at least pay guys who have the finishing talent than don't. Um, but that that being said, like obviously you need it to improve, and like even it's not just his evolving hockey numbers that aren't bad, like good, like his isolated impact is like dreadful in the offensive end. It has gotten better. Um, it, it's just so tough because there's only two year sample, right? But his first year, 2019, 20, he was just a black hole offensively. Nothing was generated. He was solid defensively. There wasn't much happening in his end last year. He was slightly above average offensively, just very, and very, very good defensively. So again, like, even if you say he's an above, slightly above average defensive guy, he needs to take that step up offensively. Um, The good news is like, we've seen guys do that at age 22, 23. So it's not like it's out of the question for him, at least to be like an okay play driver where at the end of the day, maybe he just breaks even on this contract or even is like very slightly above surplus. I just, 
I don't think is the absolute slam dunk that people online seem to think it is. No, it's definitely not a slam dunk. And like for what it's worth, he did kill Junior. Like it's not impossible. This guy breaks out in as a steal. That's why it's hard to rip uh, this. Yeah, like, yeah. I, I don't. I don't everything. think. Yeah, exactly. I don't. I don't think this is like a doom and gloom contract or anything like that. Like, no, it's not going to ruin the team. I just don't like the thought. It's like, well, he's been good defensively, and then if he just randomly gets good at offense, and it's like, it, like that's it, great, it, but defense is not repeatable at all, and he hasn't shown that offensively. Minus a hundred and what fifty minutes where he looked good on the power play last year. Like that it is, is not. Cl- yeah, it is the classic thing. Like how many times do you see in football? Like that's where I learned from the PFF was just like. Football team, and, and you see this in hockey teams too in the offseason where it's like, okay, we're going to improve the one area we were weak last year, whether that be defense, special teams, offense, wherever. And when that gets better, everything else is going to stay the same. So we're going to be unreal this year. Whereas in reality, you improve the places both ways. Exactly. Right. So you improve, uh, at least just scored on the power play, Pierre Engvall. <laughs> um, uh, you, you improve the places that you're weak. So if that's defense, yeah, your offense might regress. So it's like you need to improve there too. And it, it definitely feels like one of those things where it's projecting um, where – and that's the other thing too. I just think that the analysis is always so skewed towards the positive. And that's because, you know, I get that not everyone wants to go and listen to doom and gloom all the time where it's like, yeah, this sucks. This could really suck for your team. You want to highlight the positives. But, like, one of my biggest criticisms, I think, of mainstream media is they just – almost never seem to point out like any negative things about players when they even sort of like them, you know, like every contract that signs, like, well, this isn't like, even if it's a horrendous contract, he goes, well, this is why it could actually still be really good. And if it's a fine contract, it's like, this is an absolute steal, best contract ever signed. No way this could go wrong. It's like, that's just not how this stuff works. Yeah, exactly. Like the word if carries so much weight on Twitter, especially with people that have like inside connections and stuff and would like to keep them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like, I, I do get for some people, it's like you need to keep connections and shit. So you, you can't just absolutely be ripping on a team's decision, but. Yeah. And like, for what it's worth, most decisions um, do have like a yin and yang. Like I don't like this decision, but it makes sense. Yeah, like, like there I don't usually is both sides to it, but yeah, like I, I don't hate it. It's just yeah, I, I I'm definitely more in the middle than you are, but um, I, I think it's more the narrative around it that makes me mad than the actual process of it. Like I, I've definitely seen play teams bet on worse players than Nick Suzuki, and he, he does for what it's worth. Even you know if he's not this stud defensive forward or everything, he does kind of feel like the guy that just like even if he doesn't hit his peak the floor for him is like a $5 million player. So it could be the classic where it's like, yeah, people are going to be angry because this contract's a bit of an overpay, but at the end of the day, he's probably not as bad as people will make him out to be regardless. So yeah. I, I just like, if, if that's like the worst case scenario and you're Montreal where it's not like there's a, I, I mean, it, it feels weird saying there's not like an obvious path to cup considering they just went there last year, but for being realistic about this team, it's not like anyone is, picking them to be even top three or four cup favorites in their own division this year. Like, why wouldn't you make this kind of deal? Because again, if it's kind of like the, the Rangers where it's like, if it busts out, you're screwed anyway. So swing for the fences, I guess. True. And they do the one nice thing going for them is it's an RFA deal. So I don't you could want to compare this. every contract to Marner, but like remember when Marner signed and we were like, 
like it's a horrible contract relative to his comparables, but like Marner will absolutely be worth that in terms of actual on ice value. Yeah. There's a chance if Suzuki takes that like small step forward that like a reasonable age curve would project. And then say he stays the same at defense and he just, you know, a little bit, little step forward, every part of his game, he could be worth something close to this contract, even though it's a horrible overpay relative to his comparables because it's an RFA deal. Yeah. And the other thing, and I don't think Montreal is really considering this when they signed it, but let's say this just goes absolutely downhill for some reason, two to three years. I don't really think it's going to be that bad, but if for whatever reason it did, this is the type of player you can absolutely move around the league. Teams will always be willing to take a swing at this guy. First round pick. And then first impressions matter. His first two seasons of good defensive results, probably going to follow him around for the rest of his life. Yeah. And like everyone talks about how great of a character, like character guy he is. Obviously I have no idea, but like, he seemed like He's just from what. Yeah, exactly. And just like from whatever, like from literally how everyone talks about, he just like he quietly goes about his business. He's confident but not cocky. So it's like people just eat that stuff up, right? So if it if it does go downhill, like there's no doubt in my mind they could flip him and probably wouldn't have to pay anything to get rid of it. So yeah, as like a Rasmus Ristolainen at forward kind of thing. Literally, and like they got a first. I'm pretty sure for Ristolainen, if I'm not mistaken. So yeah. Yeah. Now so. I do think it is like you said with the floor. I do think it's more likely that he's actually worth this and then more than it is he completely busts out, but still. Agreed. I, I don't really see a, a scenario where it's like this dude should be out of the league in three years or anything like that. Yeah, exactly. It's just but. I think the median outcome is he's just like a six million dollar player making slightly too much money. Yeah, maybe I, I could see him being like a fine one C like I, I just I don't know I, I have such a hard like I can like, really see him Nylander worth like he like should be worth way more than seven but I guess it also depends how you value winger versus center yeah like if William Nylander is making 7.875 are you happy I would be in terms of actual value yeah okay like, then yeah okay that's fair yeah I think a lot yeah, of like people, it, would be off of that, but people right. would be pissed but people also don't if you're taking away like prior negotiation tactic and like comparables of what RFA's made versus UFA. If we're just talking pure value, what he brings versus what he's paid, I think Nylander absolutely exceeds 7.8. So. Yeah. Cause I think if things go, he'll obviously get the results in different ways, but I think that's kind of a realistic, like good scenario for Nick Suzuki in terms of just like overall output, not how he achieves the actual results. Yeah. Like I kind of just keep circling back to like, he kind of reminds me someone could be like, the Kyle Turris for Ottawa in the mid to 2010s. Like, yeah, something like that would make sense. Good center, maybe like slightly overpaid or right around where you expect. Like if he's like the 34th best center, 32nd best center, where he's literally the definition of a fringe one C you're probably not complaining about paying 7.8 because it's not the worst thing in the world. It's just, if that's going to be your ultimate, like number one center, you either need someone who is just as good as him right behind him, or you're probably going to be in some trouble. Yeah. Like you're good because he's pushed down your lineup, not you're good because he's leading your lineup kind of thing. Exactly. But um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see um, one more big signing. And this is uh, probably my least favorite of the four, to be honest. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Uh, and maybe my favorite player of the four as well, other than Barkov. Barkov is the best one by far, but uh, Matthias Ekholm signs a four-year extension a year out uh, ahead of time, 6.25 AAV. So he basically doubles his salary. He's making 3.7 right now. Um, so a little, little under double, but um, I just, 
I don't get this one at, at all. Um, I, I guess I kind of get it. If you're at home, you like Nashville, that's fair enough. Like, I just do not even a little bit understand this from the Nashville Predators side of things, though, because you sign him like Ekholm is already 31 years old. This doesn't kick in for another year. So he's going to be 32 by the time it kicks in. Why are you signing a dude for his 32 through 35 year seasons when you're when you suck. A, yeah, you suck and you're about to rebuild like and then and this is a dude that like could legitimately bring you back a first and probably a solid prospect at the deadline. Yeah, this is way too valuable of a player to do this with. Unless, because um, I saw some people say, well, this is great if they're doing this because it makes more valuable the deadline. Most contenders probably don't want that contract. And then it has a no movement clause attached. So, like, that doesn't seem to me like this is a, we're going to trade them. I think this is a sign them to sign them contract. I completely agree. I, I don't see at all how. Uh how this is something that in like, I, yeah, I saw people debating today. It was like, does this actually increase his value as a trade asset? It's like, no, not at all. The because, Tampa Bay lightning, like teams like Tampa Bay and Colorado don't want guys with four years left at 30, like, because they, no, they, just, they, they, they can't fit it in their budget. Yeah. Like Colorado is going to be probably buying at the deadline, but a contract like this, they can't add. Cause it'd be like, Hey, that might cost us Nathan McKinnon next year. Yeah, exactly. Like, it just it, Wait, it doesn't. Point, you don't even consider doing this. Yeah. So I I don't know. I really did not understand this from the team's perspective, especially because like like best case scenario for this is he's actually really good through this whole contract and takes you further away from a lottery pick. Yep. Because as much as I like Matthias Ekholm, 99th percentile Matthias Ekholm is not enough to turn this team into a cup contender. Not even close. Anything close. Even maybe a playoff team, depending on <laughs> maybe how the conference looks. Maybe in the West, but like, <laughs> like still, it's just, and, and that's kind of what, like, I, I don't really understand for a lot of this team, because it feels like you could say that about UC Soros, Matias Ekholm, and Roman Yossi. Yeah, well, the Yossi contract existing, too, because every time a team goes into a rebuild, you can always justify at least one or two contracts like this by saying, well, somebody's got to play, you know, teach the young guys the ropes. You already have your captain Roman Yossi on the left side, like at home side of the defense, mm-hmm. locked up for forever at the same age. Yeah, exactly. Like it just, yeah, Yossi is supposed to be your one guy to be there through the rebuild, teach the young guys on the back end or whatever. You were like, and then you flip at home for serious assets. Duchesne can be that, and Johansson can be those guys up front because you're not moving them, and they both make 16 million combined. Like you're paying. $25 million for Roman Yossi, Ryan Johansson, and Matt Duchesne for four more seasons. Like, you didn't need to add 6.25 for 32, 33, 34, and 35 year old Eckhold. No, exactly. And like I said, like, maybe it is because they're increasing his trade value, but what seems more likely that 70 year old David Poyle just doesn't want to commit to a rebuild? Or that this is some mega big brain play to increase the, one guy's trade value. The first thing, absolutely, because I don't think it does increase the trade value even a little bit. Yeah, exactly. Especially which, because, too, like, how many times have we seen, like, oh, character and culture matters and stuff? What would a team say if you sign a dude to a four-year contract extension? You could say, thank you, see you later, and flip him. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah, that's like the classic in uh, – to try to balance these things in GM mode that uh, video games always punish you for doing by giving you bad reputations with the players. 
Exactly. So I, I don't know. Like, I, I just, I don't really get it. I don't understand what the long-term plan is for this team. Cause yeah, like I don't think Poyle wants to do a rebuild, but this team is nowhere close to competing for playoffs, but like they're probably with their high end talent, they're probably not bad enough to be a bottom three team either. Unless Soros like sucks. Yep. They seem primed to be like ninth last. Mm-hmm. Which just like, Sure, you can rebuild. It just takes like five, six more years and getting really lucky with some picks to do that. Yeah, it, and even if you win the lottery twice, undeservingly, you can still be the Rangers. Yeah, exactly, right? So I, I just, I, I really don't get it. I, I don't understand this contract extension from the team perspective. I don't really understand the long-term outlook and I don't think this is going to be a super fun team to watch for a little while. I just hope no, they I, trade, I, I hope they trade Forsberg for his sake. Yeah, absolutely. Me too. And like, like if they're signing Eckholm, they clearly think they are, like I said, because I assume this is David Poyle not wanting to say die rather than some big brand play. Like, are they going to try to do the same with Forsberg now too? Yeah, I don't know. Like, that's what I'm worried about. Just a, I don't know. I don't like and, the direction. And if that is the case, why the hell did you trade Ellis for like, not a ton. Like we, we didn't mind the deal at the time because it's like, okay, yeah, you get out of eight years of that deal or six years of that deal or whatever. And it's like, you get a fine player and a pick, but like, it's not like they got a haul for Ellis. So it's like, if your goal wasn't to rebuild, why are you trading with your talent? If Like, I, I just, I really don't understand. Yeah. If you think you're a playoff team, which is kind of what this says, then the Ellis trade makes no sense. No, but if, not if you're world. building, then this contract makes no sense when he was like, like at home, I think is liked enough around the league. That could be like a cornerstone trade of your rebuild. Yeah. Especially if they did it last year, like we were kept saying, but of course they didn't do that. That cost has been sunk, but it still could have got a ton for them this year. Exactly. Yeah. I, 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 I really don't get it. And then, you know, like again, going back to like how mainstream media talks about stuff. And this is definitely more of a Friedman doesn't want to give up his, you know, make his sources mad. But he goes, hearing Nashville gets a key piece of business done. Matthias Eckholm resigning at four years. It's like, that's not a good thing. No, it's not like doing something with Matthias Eckholm is a key piece of business, but extending your guy who's going to be what? What is he going to be? Like a number two defenseman at yeah, 32 like, for four years? I, I yeah, just like that's it's, one of again, those especially where they are, you know, like if this was a team that was trying to look for a cup, it'd be like, yeah, that is a great key piece of business, but like, it's not. Yeah. The Tampa Bay lightning were signing this in a world where McDonough didn't exist. Be like, you know what? You gotta do what you gotta do. Or like the penguins and capitals when they're old and coming to the end of the window, but still have some juice, but for the predators, it's just absolutely pointless to me. Yeah. I, I really, I don't understand it. Um, one more signing I want to get to way, way smaller. I just want to give it a shout out because it's really, it's good uh, heartwarming story. And that's Brian Boyle signing a contract with the Pittsburgh Penguins league men, 750 K. Uh, he's 36 years old, did not play at all last year um, during the pandemic. Um, but, you know, he, he battled through cancer a couple years ago, played through that, uh, was still an effective fourth line the last couple of times. We've seen him has flipped around a couple of teams, but signs with the Penguins and scored in his, uh, debut last night against the um, uh, Tampa Bay Lightning. So um, not like there's much analysis. I just want to point like uh, point that out. I think it was a, uh, it's a good story to watch and one of the heart, heartwarming stories that there are through hockey. Yeah, exactly. Great for him. He seems like a good dude. 
um, from everything I've seen. It's nice to see him score in his first game back, and it's a it's a cool story. Yep, absolutely. Um, other than that, I don't have a ton to talk about. Um, the only thing I was going to bring up was just, um, do you know when Seattle's first home game is this year? Do they start on like a four game road trip or something stupid? It might be more. It's probably around four games. It's October twenty third is their first home game because the they weren't they start game one at home is ridiculous. I know. So I, I guess it's because their arena wasn't ready yet, or oh. they were worried that it wasn't going to be ready yet. So that's what they had to do. But I was just like, just leave it to the NHL to have your expansion franchise have to start their 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 series on the road. They play five games. They played the goal. So they played the Golden Knights last night. Then they go to Columbia. So they go out east too is the funniest thing to me to start this uh, um, thing. So they play the Predators tomorrow. Then they go Blue Jackets, Flyers, and Devils. And then they're back home Saturday, October 23rd against the Canucks. Um, and then they got a bit of a homestand, a four-game homestand there. But yeah, I was like, just leave it to the NHL where it's, I think it was COVID that delayed it. So it's not like it's really their fault. I just got a good laugh. That's like, yeah, your new franchise can't play at home for almost a month because their arena's not ready. And they did the exact same thing with Vegas too. That's like Vegas had a two or three game road trip to start as well. Yeah. But like, I think with Vegas though, I think part of the reason they did the road trip um, was because they wanted to try and like, I think they thought they could really double dip on um, views, like where people were going to watch the new team, whatever. It didn't matter if they were at home or away. And then you got to double down with uh, this is their first home game too. Okay. That actually, that, that makes at least some intuitive sense, but it just seems like the easiest way to build a fan base right away. is just like that first game at home would be so cool to have tickets oh, to. Absolutely. And like, like, I don't think the crack is going to be horrible or anything, but, like, starting on the road, especially a long road trip like that, like, I'm sure that's not, like, the easiest thing in the world for a brand, especially for, like, a brand-new team that's all just, like, it's literally 20 players that have never played with each other before, right? Or, you know, maybe one or two have here or there. But, um, you know, like, if they start one and four or whatever, like, that takes a lot of the wind out of the sails out of a home opener and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, it really does. Versus where, yeah, it's like the first game of the season, anything can happen, new season. And I'm not saying they are going to go one and four. I, I think they absolutely can beat the Predators. Honestly, all four, they could really go rock, rock off four in a row with Preds, Jackets, Flyers, Devils. I don't think any of those four teams are really good. But, um, you know, like if you're on the road, if like other things have happened. So um, that that sounds funny. But also, uh, they're not even the only team to start like this. Uh, the New York Islanders new building isn't uh, – uh, ready yet and they got kicked out of the coliseum i believe or um was it coliseum where do they play the, the old barn oh i forget um, what it's called. They just it was the coliseum. recently too didn't they uh they changed the barclay center and that was an absolute shit show so they stopped playing there and then went i think they were doing 50 percent for a while um but they then they changed but they have a new arena this year uh yeah, it is the NASA Coliseum. That's what it was called. Um, but yeah, their new arena is not ready yet either. So they're starting on a pretty long road trip. And I'm pretty sure as well. I'm just looking this up. They're on an even longer one. Like, guess when their first home game is? November 1st. Later. Jesus, actually. November 20th. They're on the road for a month and a week. Imagine going to work, but you have to start on the road for your first month. <laughs> yeah, like, like this is insane. I didn't realize how bad this one was at all, to be honest. But that's why I wanted to bring that. So they play the Islanders tomorrow to start their season off, and they go uh, Panthers, Blackhawks, 
Blue Jackets, Coyotes, a Golden Knights, Predator. So at least you get your Western road trip out of the way, I guess, right away. And then you go Canadians, yeah. Jets, Wild Devil. Like, this is just the most random travel schedule I've ever heard in the entire world. Like, like why are you going? So you go Hurricanes, Panthers. That makes enough sense, right? Like same same conference at least. And uh, then you go Blackhawks. So like, okay, that's a bit of a travel. Columbus, I'm pretty sure, isn't like too, too bad. But then you go Arizona, Vegas. Like, all right, you're going out west kind of. But then you go play the Predators. Like, wouldn't it not make more sense to do like the Predators closer to the Blackhawks? And then you go from the Preds, you go to the Canadians. So like, okay, now you're back in the Eastern time zone. And then you go to a Central time zone with the Jets. Yeah, that's really weird. <laughs> It is just insane. They go wild and then back to New Jersey and then Florida or like Tampa Bay, Florida. And then they're at home November 20th and they have a four game homestand before going on the road again. Hmm. So they start, I'm just looking at this because they have a four game homestand and then they play three more on the road. So they have five home games before December 5th. That's so aggressive. That is the most aggressive. And they they have six home games before December 10th or 9th. Like, that is insane. Two, four, six. 21 games to start the season, and six of them will be at home. That's tough. That's just tough for, like, the players, just mentally or whatever, just to be on the road that often. Literally, like, that's one of the things where it's, like, I like actual home ice I don't think has as much of a, an advantage. But if you're traveling for a full month or whatever, like, that's got to wear on you just from a, a mental perspective, a physical perspective, like, just everything. Yeah, exactly. You're just getting excited to go for work, and then that's how you have to start off, just away from everybody for that long. That would be yeah, fun. like, people who have families, like, you can't see your family for, like, a month. Yeah, bye, honey. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, you're, just li- you're living in hotel to hotel, like day to day. Like, I, I know it's like you can only complain about it so much because people will be like, that sounds like life. But like, I'd say, like, it absolutely would take a t- toll on you, especially if you're trying to perform to like absolute peak abilities. Yeah, exactly. So um, that was the only thing I really had other than that. I just couldn't believe how uh, I thought the Seattle one was weird and that, uh, that Islanders one is absolutely nuts. But, um, I don't have anything else if you don't. I don't think so. All right. Well, let's wrap it up then. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. And I think I speak for both of us and say we're super excited for the season to get started. Uh, we'll be back uh, next week. We're going to go weekly again throughout the season. Uh, I think we actually did a pretty good job this offseason uh, going weekly podcasting. We really didn't miss a week at all, I don't think. And and the short offseason definitely helped that that we could do, you know, lists and stuff. And then it was already training camp time. But um, yeah, as always, you can find my work at lastwordonhockey.com. Uh, I should say I stopped writing for milehighhockey.com. I decided to step back from the site. Um, I will still be doing all my stuff with Last Word, including I'm trying to actually write even a little bit more, I think. But if there's any other site or, you know, anywhere that is uh, looking for a contributor, let me know. You can find me on Twitter at an NHL sentence and stuff. Jason on Twitter at CMHockey66. Thank you everyone so much for listening and we'll talk to you all next week.